0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television. Power. It's the ultimate aphrodisiac. If you have power, political, corporate, military, physical, personal, you win. You can control your environment, direct your own destiny, and have things your way. If you've been able to accumulate power and keep it tightly contained around you. Niccolo Machiavelli's 16th century political treatise, The Prince, deals with these issues in great detail. From The Prince comes the unforgettable statement, it's better to be feared than loved. But Machiavelli's prime motivation for writing the book was to promote the stability of the state through a prince's wielding of power. Overt licentiousness, drunkenness, brawling, plotting, or gratuitous cruelty could actually work against that stability, as well could the misguided use of power. That could work against the balance of power among states, and could meet with disastrous results. No. No, no, absolutely not. Just get it done. In the opera we'll be discussing, we meet a very unwise prince, a duke actually, who wields power brutally and sees it simply as a means to fulfill his own need for amusement. He uses his station in life to entice or even force women to satisfy his desires, and his accrued power makes that possible. Further, the opera focuses on his henchmen the man who helps him fulfill all these desires, himself a man at the Duke's every command and whim, and whose enabling actions eventually put himself and his beloved daughter in harm's way. The opera, Rigoletto, of course, by Giuseppe Verdi. You can go. You can go. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. talked in the past about Verdi's life and think we have a pretty good grasp of his personality. His was certainly a strong personality. He could be stubborn and irascible at times, but he had a big Italian heart. He was passionate about the theater and absolutely uncompromising about his artistic principles, and considering the number of successes that he had versus failures, he was usually right about standing up for those principles, even under dire circumstances. The Verdi scholar Roger Parker, in his article on Verdi in the New Grove Dictionary of Opera, gives us a very good glimpse at what Verdi's compositional process included. He would first find a subject that attracted him because of its strong dramatic situations, and usually these were stories taken from the great romantic authors Schiller, Byron, Hugo, or stories from the Middle Ages with dark Gothic character. Then he'd immediately enter into negotiations with the theater, dealing with the directors of the theaters himself. These negotiations would include casting, the nature of the orchestra, the chorus, the banda, as well as the schedule for delivery of the score and rehearsals. The librettist would be brought in during this stage, and during Verdi's so-called middle period, that was most often the poet Francesco Maria Piave, whose texts he used in 14 or 15 different projects. Verdi would work very closely with Piave from a prose sketch of the libretto, determine where the arias, the ensembles, and recitatives would be, and then give the result back to the poet to versify the piece. Only when the libretto was complete and met his stringent qualifications did he begin writing the score. Now Verdi's writing of the score is a study in itself. He'd first produce what we call a short score, typically just the vocal line on top and a bass line underneath to suggest harmony. Then he'd produce what we call a skeleton score, which would add to the voice and the bass, assign certain essential instrumental lines, giving an indication as to where he thought the orchestration would go. It was from this skeleton score that Verdi gave his copyists to prepare a vocal score for the singers and their rehearsals. Then, and this is the amazing part to me, he'd waited till getting into rehearsals in order to hear the quality and the volume of the cast before he'd actually orchestrate the opera. This often left him only a few short weeks to do the orchestration. Now, as hectic as that may seem, it was a great way to work because he could tailor the final color of the opera to the talents or limitations of his soloists, getting the best possible result. And that's the way Verdi worked from 1842 with the premiere of his opera Nabucco through 1850 when he wrote Stifelio, That was 14 operas in eight years. Then in 1850 he was attracted to another great story, one that he thought was Shakespearean in its scope and in its sense of drama. We turn now to the creation of one of his greatest works, Rigoletto. Adio. 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 Verdi was approached by the Teatro La Fenice in Venice to write an opera for their carnival season in 1851. He found a property in Victor Hugo's play Le Roi s'amuse, a stage drama that caused such a ruckus in Paris when it was premiered that it was removed from the stage after only one performance. Hugo's work was a depiction of the licentious court of the French king, Francis I. The work centers on his court jester, called Triboulet in the play, who is cursed by one of the court nobles for his part in the seduction of the man's daughter. Being the public depiction of an absolute monarch in less than ideal circumstances, the play was just begging to be banned. But the French authorities couldn't keep people from reading the play, and everyone did. It became wildly popular, was translated into many languages, and eventually made its way into the hands of Verdi. Verdi was fascinated by the character of Triboulet, a deformed, hunchbacked jester on the outside, but on the inside, a loving father, a frightened courtier, and a man with many demons. The composer and his librettist, Piave, had to be somewhat careful writing for the Venice Theater, as all of northern Italy was at that time ruled by Austria, and given Austria's paranoia about revolution, one could calculate that their censorship policies would be quite strict. Piave, however, won out by reassuring Verdi that the story of Francis I was far enough removed from current events that the Austrians could have no possible objection to the content of the libretto. Well... Piave was wrong. Listen to this from the Imperial and Royal Central Director. His Excellency directs me to communicate to you his profound regret that the poet Piave and the celebrated Maestro Verdi should not have chosen a more worthy subject to display their talents than the revolting immorality and obscene triviality of the libretto of La Maledizione submitted to us for intended performance at the Teatro Fenice. His above-mentioned Excellency has decided that the performance shall be absolutely forbidden and wishes me at the same time to request you not to make further inquiries into this matter. End of story. Well, this would have put off any other composer-librettist team, but not Verdi and Piave. They persisted and their persistence eventually paid off, but with some changes. The setting had to be changed to a smaller kingdom or principality— they chose Mantua, a king or a duke, and all the names had to be changed from the Hugo original so as not to reflect in any way on the identity of Francis I. Hence, Francis became the duke of Mantua, Tribolet went from Triboletto to Rigoletto, and his daughter, who is deflowered by the king, called Blanche in the play, becomes Gilda. Other minor changes were made, but key scenes and dramatic situations that Verdi dearly wanted to keep were restored. Rigoletto was a tremendous success at its first performance in March 1851. And what did Verdi do following this success? He got himself engaged with the Fenice again, as well as the Teatro Apollo in Rome, to write and produce his next two operas, writing them simultaneously il trovatore, and la traviata. Now that's what I call a middle period. As the opera opens, the Duke of Mantua is hosting a lavish party for his courtiers, telling one of his henchmen that he's been following a beautiful young girl from church every Sunday to her home, which happens to be off of a dark alley. He wants to know more about her, and she's fast becoming the next target of his hit list. During a dance, he flirts with one of the ladies whose husband watches from the sidelines, frozen with anger. Rigoletto, the court jester, appears and taunts the husband, stirring up the anger of all the courtiers. Soon, one Monterone arrives, complaining to the duke about having deflowered his daughter. Rigoletto mocks the man so viciously that he curses the jester and the duke before being taken off to prison. On his way home through the dark alleyways of Mantua, Rigoletto ponders the curse and fears for the worst. He's accosted by Sparafucile, an assassin, who offers to kill anyone for a price, even, perhaps, a nobleman. Rigoletto demurs, but will remember the offer when he needs it. Coming home, he is greeted enthusiastically by his daughter, Gilda, and in a duet, she asks him about her mother, whom she never knew. Rigoletto tells her about the sweetest and gentlest woman that ever lived. Gilda asks for more freedom, but her father is adamant that her maid keep a close watch on her, Gilda reassures him, but feels guilty that she's not confessed to him about the young man who's been following her home from church. That same man, the Duke, arrives after Rigoletto leaves and pours out his love to Gilda under the name of Gualtier Malde. He bids her farewell, but at the same time, a group of courtiers arrive on the dark street below, ready to kidnap the woman that they still think is Rigoletto's mistress. Meeting Rigoletto on the street, they blindfold him and trick him into helping them kidnap his own daughter. Upon discovering the ruse, Rigoletto cries out, La maledizione, the curse. In Act Two, the courtiers present the duke with a gift, the woman that they all still think is Rigoletto's mistress. The duke goes into his apartments to take advantage of this new conquest. Rigoletto enters, making a vain attempt to be comic, but he restlessly looks about the court as the nobles watch him slowly unravel. They tell him that the woman is now with the duke, and he rails against them, calling them vile and evil, and reveals that it is his daughter who is now with the duke in his bedchamber. Gilda emerges, the crowd disperses, and Rigoletto listens to her story. His grief is overwhelming as he hears how his lord, the duke, has taken advantage of the purity of his daughter. As Gilda tries to restrain him, Rigoletto decides that he will be fully avenged. The third act presents the denouement with a surprise ending that rivals Hitchcock. It'd be cruel to give it away here, especially for those of you who are going to be seeing Rigoletto for the first time. Just be ready for anything. This opera has it all. As is usual with Verdi's operas, the composer gets right to the dramatic point as quickly as possible. In these first three bars of the score of Rigoletto, during the orchestral prelude, trumpets and trombones play this distinctive rhythmic pattern. This pattern is joined by the rest of the orchestra in the second bar with this dissonant chord and its resolution. All put together, this sequence of musical ideas produces a dark and foreboding effect. In the course of the opera, this idea becomes very important because every time the character of Rigoletto reflects on the curse, the curse of Monterone, The composer refers to this same music. The Old Man Cursed Me. This has often been called a curse theme, but it really isn't a theme at all, since the composer is just repeating a single note using a very specific rhythm. It's actually more of a dramatic device which helps us focus on the effect of Monterone's curse and on the action of the opera throughout its course. The curse idea is only one way with which Verdi uses music to tell his story. For instance, dramatically, in the first scene, he needs to get across the superficial, corrupt, and morally bankrupt nature of the Duke of Mantua's court, He needs to do this quickly and efficiently so that the audience gets the point immediately. So Verdi scored party music to be played by a backstage band, dance music really, that is of such a superficial, abrasive nature that we can't help but capture the overall atmosphere of this decadent court. Over this dance music, Verdi cleverly superimposes the first sung bits of dialogue between the Duke and his courtiers. Part of this decadent quality is used to characterize the Duke of Mantua himself. His music often has a dance-like quality, his tunes are bald and obvious, they're aggressive in nature, they're all just like him like his first aria, Questa o Quella. Or La Donna Mobile, perhaps the most famous tune from the whole opera. This is music of an obvious, superficial nature with little subtlety or nuance required. It's also music of a very structured nature, perhaps reflecting as well the conservative character of an absolutist court. How different then is the music for Rigoletto? Here's an outwardly ugly character, a hunchback whose disability has forced him into a court position that encourages a bitter and caustic nature. Inside, however, we discover him to be a loving and protective father. When we first meet him during this court party in Act one, he almost blends into the musical woodwork, simply singing his dialogue over the party music that you heard earlier. The party comes to a feverish pitch, and then Monterone enters angrily, demanding to talk to the Duke, and he's intercepted by Rigoletto, who mimics his voice and manner. The music which accompanies this moment beautifully describes both Rigoletto's mimicry as well as his deformed body as he lurches across the room towards Monterone. (laughs) ¶¶ After Rigoletto's first encounter with Sparafucile, the assassin, in an alley outside his home, he reflects on the events of the evening. This murderer and I, we are alike. I with my tongue, he with a dagger. I'm the one who mocks. He is the one who slays. <laughs> And then again we get, how heavy weighs that curse on me. The old man cursed me. O oh men, O oh nature, you have made me a villain. O oh fury, to be misshapen, to be a jester. All of these twisted little musical figures come from the idea I played originally when Rigoletto was mocking Monterone. But towards the end of this recitative, he expresses the difference that overcomes him when he's at home, happily joined with his daughter. The whole role of Rigoletto is written this way, with wonderfully descriptive music expressing his two natures, the ruthless outer core and the tender interior. In fact, the role, which lies murderously high for baritones, has no real aria, just these wonderful monologues and ensembles that make him one of the most unusual characters in all opera. There's no lack of resources for Verdi or for Rigoletto, one of his greatest operas, so let's dig in. Here are plenty of recordings on CD, just a few of the ones that are available. You can't go wrong with this CD from London Decca, with Cheryl Milnes as Rigoletto, Joan Sutherland as Gilda, and Luciano Pavarotti as the Duke, the London Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Richard Bonning. This is probably the classic stereo recording of the opera, and it is truly wonderful. Here's an earlier recording of Sutherland in the role of Gilda, again on London Decca, with tenor Renato Cioni as the Duke and Cornell McNeil in the role of Rigoletto. He was wonderful in it, and he sang it quite frequently. For something different, though, let's turn to this recording conducted by Giuseppe Sinopoli. The Rigoletto is Renato Brusson, the Gilda is Edita Gruberova, and Neil Schikoff is the Duke, all with the chorus and orchestra of the Accademia, Nazionale di Santa Cecilia in Rome. And here's another classic for you Callas lovers. The Rigoletto is Piero compolonghi one of the great Rigolettos of that era. Miss Callas is Gilda and the Duke, her constant companion on recording it seems, Giuseppe Di Stefano. Callas is wonderful of course, although the sound on this operadoro recording is a little dated since it's from 1952. In terms of DVD, we have this production from the Metropolitan Opera under the direction of James Levine. Placido Domingo is the Duke, the Rigoletto is, again, the wonderful Cornell McNeil, and Gilda is sung by Ileana Kotrubash. I'm sure out of all of these resources, you'll find something wonderful to pique your interest and get you a little bit more into Rigoletto. (laughs) ¶¶ Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Will the duke get his comeuppance? Will Rigoletto receive justice? Will Gilda find love, true love, in the arms of her duke? No, no, and no. But the working out of this tragedy is what makes it so exciting to experience. The dramatic situation, the glorious music... The unique way that Verdi built this opera it makes it one of his best. I know you won't want to miss it. I'm Nick Ravellis. I'll see you at the opera.